Last weekend, we introduced a series of lessons last Sunday morning, and I know that we did live stream them, and it was a bit of a bit of a mad morning because I spent about five hours here on the Saturday making sure everything worked properly, and then Sunday morning everything decided not to work properly, and at about five minutes to ten, we, we threw an iPhone on a tripod, and, and uh, we, we live streamed from an iPhone, um, and fortunately that worked okay. <laughs> But uh, one of the things about streaming is you're never really sure who's on the other end. And uh, I know it would have been nice and warm for most of you to be in your homes. But uh, we want to, I want to just, because of the fact we weren't here together, I do want to take a moment just to revise a little bit of what we covered and then move on. Now, series, if you could throw up that title slide, please, Sophia. Our series is called Will You Be His Disciple? And uh, we, we took this question from the story in the Gospel of John chapter 9 where Jesus healed the blind man and the religious leaders tried to challenge the miracle, tried to challenge what had happened, tried to find a way to discredit Jesus and, and to tear down his reputation and, and disqualify the, the claims about who he was that he made and the blind man that was healed was retelling the account of the miracle. You know, this. It's good to testify about what God has done for you. If, if the Lord's done a miracle for you, you need to share that testimony. But this, this man who had been blind was getting a bit frustrated because the peop, these Pharisees weren't interested in hearing his testimony so that they might glorify God. They were interested in trying to find a way to poke holes in his experience of what had happened to him. And almost a little bit cynically or a little bit sarcastically, he turns to the Pharisees and he said, will you also be his disciples? And that got them all upset and they said, no, you're his disciple. We're, we're the disciples of Moses, failing to understand that if they really understood Moses, they'd want to be the disciples of Jesus. We took some time last week to underline that our conversion experience or being a convert is very, very important. That the process of going from not believing in God or not being sure if we believed in God to believing in God with our hearts is, is the first step towards being saved. And that by having faith in God and His Word, it leads us to an opportunity to be born again of water and spirit, to repent of our sins, to be baptized in Jesus' name, and to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And the Scripture lets us know that Jesus said, we must be born again if we want to enter the kingdom of God. It's not presented as optional, it's presented as absolutely necessary. And so to repent of our sins, to die to that old life, to be baptized in Jesus' name and to be filled with the Holy Ghost is, the, is a, a new birth. It's the beginning of a new life. But what happens, we, we understand from Scripture, and I, I, would, I always want to try to fold in the necessity of salvation because it's so important. It's the only way to be saved. But it's, it's not like, a, you know, it's not something you have to do because it's, it's unpleasant. It's the most wonderful experience in the world to be, to be filled with the Holy Ghost and have your sins washed away in Jesus' name. But what we do with that new life, once we've been born again, is crucial. We should never return to the old life that we needed saving from in the first place. But rather, we should begin to walk with Jesus. And that's what it means when we are becoming a disciple. We read a very strong passage of Scripture last Sunday that I'm going to read again, Luke chapter 14. Starting to read at verse 25, it says, And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me 
and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, or we might say, well, he's still got a bit of time, he sends an ambassador, an ambassador, and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. It's a, it's a powerful passage of Scripture. It's a strong, confronting passage of Scripture to people that are simply interested in being blessed by God and God taking care of their problems. It's, it's an offensive passage of Scripture. Because it speaks to us of a cost, speaks to us of a price and of a willingness to go down a certain path. And Jesus made in those statements, he, he said that these, some of these are some of the things that will either include us or exclude us from being his disciples. He said our commitment to follow him must be greater than our love for family and friends and even for ourselves. And he uses the word hate, the word is translated as hate and and we, we understand that to be in a comparative sense, that, that our commitment to Jesus, our love for Jesus, our desire to please Jesus is so much stronger than our love for our family and our friends and even for our own dreams and our own will and our own desires, that, that we, we must be committed to Him to that level. He is not teaching us. If we took that passage in isolation, then we could say the Scripture teaches me to hate everybody and just love Jesus. But the problem with that idea is it doesn't go with the rest of Scripture. When you want to understand Scripture, you've got to be able to put it together and all the pieces have to make sense. Because the Lord also said, the first commandment is what? We love the Lord, there's one Lord. We love Him with everything we've got. And the second is we love our neighbor as ourselves. It talks to us about loving our families and honoring and reverencing our families. So we, we cannot understand that to mean that we're supposed to hate everybody, but rather such is our commitment designed to be to Jesus that it transcends all other relationships. We must bear our cross. It doesn't say the cross. It says that we must bear our cross, His cross. Every man must bear His cross. There must be a willingness to sacrifice whatever is required of us, even if that means our lives. We must consider the cost, be willing to pay it. Jesus described a discipleship that was basically an all-or-nothing arrangement in terms of our commitment to Him. And from last week's lesson, we, we borrowed a simple statement as a reference that we can use when, we just do, when somebody says, what is a disciple? We are, our focal point is that a disciple is someone who is following, serving, and growing. And when we read that passage in Luke 14, I'd encourage you to read that passage at home and spend some time thinking about what it says. These three areas are certainly covered in that passage, following, serving, and growing. 
And so with that as our platform, we want to look at some of these ideas in a little more detail. What does it mean to be a follower? What does it mean in a biblical sense to be a follower? In our present culture, in this day and age, people follow each other on social media platforms. If you're on any of the the social media platforms, you'll understand that you get requests from other people asking if they can follow you. It's kind of like being asked for permission to stalk you on the internet. It's effectively what it is. They want to look at your photos and see what you're doing and see if they like what you had for lunch or what you've done with your clothes or whatever it might be that you're posting. I am on several social media platforms. I don't uh, interact with them a whole lot. Um, it's always interesting to me because there's, there's one particular social media platform where I basically don't do anything and I get people requesting to follow me. I'm like, you enjoy that. There's not much to follow. There's nothing happening there, but if you want to follow me, you go right ahead. But we also speak about following in our culture. People follow different sporting teams. People follow different social or political commentators. People even follow philosophies. There's a lot of talk in the Western world about socialism and Marxism. And if you know anything about Marxism, it, its original format, well, I'm not sure how it compares today, but it came from a man whose name was Karl Marx. And so people who follow the philosophies, the ideologies of Karl Marx are called Marxists. And even, even from a theological viewpoint, there are figures in broader church history, use that word loosely, church history, that have, these figures took a position or, or taught a particular perspective on a subject and sometimes biblically sound, other times not so much. And people who held to those teachings were often referred to as followers of that person. A couple of very easy examples. There's some names you may or may not know. There was a man by the name of John Calvin who lived many years ago in the broader church world and people who hold to his teaching are sometimes referred to as Calvinists. There was another man by the name of Martin Luther who was also a significant figure in a period of time known as the Reformation and today there are still Lutheran churches. If you drive around and you see a Lutheran church, that's named after Martin Luther and the things that he taught. And both of these men lived centuries ago, so I'm not in a position to examine their motives, but unfortunately some of their teaching doesn't really line up with Scripture. So I'm neither a Calvinist or a Lutheran. And uh, I I think wearing a label is not necessarily the important thing. As a side note, just when we think about various beliefs, it's worth knowing that often the most persuasive false doctrines are a very clever mix of truth, tradition, and fables. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know the Word of God. You need to know what you believe, why you believe, and what believing that means in your life. Because if you don't know the Scripture, things that are well packaged can be very persuasive, and you can end up believing something that is not true. We must know the Word of God. In the book of Acts, I I think from memory it's around about chapter 12, in a city called Antioch, the the believers there, it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. They were given a label. Why? Because they were followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not that label was complimentary at that time or not is probably a point for discussion, but I'm sure that the early church wore that label with a badge of pride to be called Christians, to be considered followers of Jesus Christ. What, what that meant 2,000 years ago is a little bit different to how that's unpacked in society today. 
But in Antioch in the first century, they were first called Christians. Amen. And when you, when you get into the New Testament and uh, get into word meanings, which you know I like to do a little bit of, there are quite a number of Greek words, Greek being the language the New Testament was first written in. There are quite a number of Greek words that are translated as follow or follower. But the one that is most often used when describing people that follow Jesus is actually a compound word made up from two different words. The first word that makes up, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, it's not even my notes because my Greek is pretty ordinary. But the first word basically means to begin, to, to start, and sometimes it includes in that starting the idea of a union, a likeness, or a coming together, like to begin a relationship. We begin something, there's a union, there's a coming together. And the second word that makes up that compound word means a way. Not a way as in go away, but a way as in a road or a path or a direction. And so when we consider the word follow or follower with this understanding, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus who has begun a relationship with him and is deliberately going his way. There is a coming together, there is a union, there is a relationship that begins. And when you, when you look at the word know in the New Testament, it is often translated from a Greek word that speaks of intimacy or closeness in relationship. It's not like when somebody says, oh, do you know so-and-so? And you think, oh, yeah, I think I met them once, you know, 10 years ago. It speaks about an ongoing closeness in relationship. Amen. And when Jesus called his original disciples, when he said to them to follow him, their response was both immediate and literal. Amen. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, it says that Jesus passed forth, passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew, he's also known as Levi, sitting at the receipt of custom. He was a tax collector, everybody's favorite guy. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Jesus said, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through to 22, it says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets. I don't know if they left them hanging in the water. They probably pulled them in first. But straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. So they're obviously fishermen as well. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And you need to understand, culturally, that's a big deal. Just walking away from dad and the, the family business. But everywhere that Jesus went, they went with him. Nazareth, Bethlehem, Samaria, Judea, Bethany, all the different places, all by foot, walking from place to place. Now, that's a nice little bit of New Testament history, but how does that affect us today? 2021, it's even amazing to say that. I can remember when everybody thought the world was going to end in 2000. Everybody unplugged their computers and some people went and lived in bunkers up in the hills and uh, came back really embarrassed when the world continued a week later. But how does this affect us in the present? It's highly unlikely that Jesus is going to physically come walking into your place of employment or your school, and just say, drop everything and follow me, and let's go. Not very likely to happen. 
We're not likely to be asked to follow a literal, physical Jesus walking from town to town and community to community. So can we just dismiss this idea of of, of following lightly? We can't because the decision to follow Jesus had an instant impact on their livelihood. When Matthew walked away from his tax collector's office, Peter and Andrew and James and John walked away from their family fishing business. Their income stopped immediately. Matthew's no longer collecting tax. The other four brothers are no longer selling fish at the marketplace. There's no Centrelink. 30 AD, Israel. There's no JobKeeper payments. None of that exists. And from what we can understand, there's not a lot of direct information given, but it seems as though Jesus... And the disciples were supported by the giving of others. Others gave to them to help them. And they fortunately did have a couple of people that had a bit of money, it seems. Nicodemus was probably a, a, a financer. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who probably helped. We, we can only make those assumptions. But these funds they received provided for their needs and also they ministered to the poor as they went from place to place. Judas, we know, was their treasurer. He was the one described as holding the bag And that became a problem for him. And you know that story, or at least you can read it later. So while while we may not walk out of work in the middle of a shift to follow Jesus, if we are going to be his disciples, then his will, his direction, needs to be sought when we are making all of our major decisions, including decisions about our employment and our finances. And that's when it gets quiet and the mood in the room changes. You see, if I am going to be a follower of Jesus, then I do not want the decisions I make for myself and for my family to be in opposition to His will. I want, when I'm making major decisions, major life decisions, I need to very carefully consider what is the will of God, not what is the will of Simon. You see, when Sister Katerina and I moved here in April 97, we came for one purpose. We came to Perth to assist Brother and Sister Glass in the church here. We didn't come for the Western Australian economy or the Great Beaches or any of of Perth's other great qualities. I love the city of Perth. My wife and I often talk, it's hard for us to imagine living anywhere else. And I'm not planning on going anywhere else unless the Lord says, go somewhere else. I wasn't planning on leaving Cairns until the Lord said, come to Perth. But we, we came to assist in the church. We just came to be helpers. That's all we came to do. And so every important decision that we made and hopefully continue to make is examined through that lens. What is God's will for our lives? What jobs, before I was pastoring, what jobs I would apply for, whether I accepted jobs if they were offered, what days and hours I was willing to work, where we would live, and so on. All of those decisions are measured through the lens of, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. What, where does he want me to go? How does he want me to live? What is the direction he wants to set for our lives? And many of you have heard me testify, but I, I went to job interviews here, and the Lord made a way for me because I made that decision that I wanted to follow him. He made a way for me to get jobs where I never had to work on weekends. Sorry, on Sundays. I worked Saturdays, but not Sundays. And you might think, well, that's not a big deal. It is when you work in hospitality, which is a a seven-day-a-week industry. 
restaurants and resorts and hotels don't close down on Sundays and throw everybody out. And so it was a seven-day-a-week industry, and the, the two main jobs I had before I was pastoring the church full-time, I replaced a person who was working a Tuesday to Saturday roster. God made a way. And I made that clear at the interviews when I went for those jobs that that was why we were in town. We were here to help in the church. And God, will, I want to tell you this morning that if you will honor God in your decisions, God will bless you. He will take care of you. Amen. I believe very much that if you want to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, that if you will do the things that please him, he knows your needs and he's able to take care of them. In, in the same vein, I believe very much in the power and the necessity of prayer. The church lives and dies on prayer. Your walk with God lives and dies on prayer. But as much as this might seem a strange thing to say, having said that, there are some things you don't need to pray about. There are some things you don't need to pray about. And all of a sudden everyone's like, hang on a sec, the pastor's telling me I shouldn't pray about something? I'll tell you why I say that, because if you have certain commitments, certain consecrations, certain boundaries in your life that are based upon the Word of God, they should be non-negotiable. They shouldn't be open for discussion. There shouldn't be any wheeling and dealing or bargaining going on. And so when, when situations are presented in your life that are contrary to those things, you don't need a week of prayer and fasting. You already know the answer. It shouldn't matter. You know, if, if I was offered a high-paying, career-defining job opportunity that would cause me to miss out on being in the house of God, I don't need to pray about that. The answer is no because of decisions that have already been made. That's why, So don't misunderstand me when I say there are some things you don't need to pray about. If you've already set those boundaries in your life, then there are some questions that it's easy to answer. You know, if, well, you've got to, I've been offered a job, I've got to work in Timbuktu, I'll be in church once every seven and a half years. That takes about three milliseconds to work out. And then the answer is no. You know, if you're single and you want to get married and you meet somebody that's not interested in walking with God, you don't need to pray about that. That's a no-brainer. The answer is No. If the answer is yes, it's definitely a no-brainer. Because you haven't got a brain. Sorry. But there are some things in our lives you don't have to pray about. It's just they're principles from the Word of God. The answer is no. It's that simple. It's already decided. Too many believers, I'm not just saying here, I'm saying in Christianity as a whole, too many believers pray about things they already know the answer to because they're trying to get God's fingerprints on a natural desire or preference. They'll often preface their decision with, I prayed about it and I feel like God said this. Okay, he must be having a bad day because he's gone against his word, but if God said that to you, who am I to argue? John chapter 10 and verse 27, talking about following this morning. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me there's three things in this verse there's hearing it's where it begins then there's knowing which is relationship then there's following or responding correctly to what has been heard we hear we know it's his voice we respond and we follow the idea of following jesus please don't misunderstand me when i say this but when you're first filled with the holy ghost the idea of following Jesus is so exciting, 
It's the best idea that you've ever had in your life and the, the power of that conversion experience of, of feeling the Holy Ghost in you for the first time. It's like there's electricity in you. It's, it's hard to describe. And those of you that have recently been filled with the Holy Ghost should be able to say amen to that. And, and in that, that, that newness of that experience and that excitement for what God is doing and our desire just to worship God, we make grand statements of what we want to do for Christ. And we, we pray prayers of commitment that we really do not have a clue what we are praying. Anybody walk with the Lord for a while know what I'm talking about? Sometimes our mouths write checks that our lives may struggle to cash. Because we're like, you know, we're just feeling the power of God and the love of God. And I just, you know, and it's just, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing. But you see, in Jesus' ministry, there were times when things got a little bit more sober. A little bit more uh, harder to swallow. Probably the right expression, actually. Because in John chapter 6... Jesus has some conversations with his disciples, the people who were following him. And in that conversation, quite a well-known passage of Scripture, he talks to them about how they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they're all like, whoa, that's intense. And, uh, and it's difficult for them to grasp. It's challenging for them to understand what he's trying to say. You see, Jesus... Jesus wasn't talking about cannibalism. He wasn't talking about literally chewing on his arm. You see, the understanding for Scripture is found in Scripture because the Bible tells us that he was the Word made flesh. And in that same chapter, he goes on to say that his Word is both spirit and it is life. He's talking to us about how there needs to be a consuming of his Word. There needs to be a willingness to believe and obey everything that he was presenting to them, not just the blessings and the goodness, but even even in the, their struggle to understand that there were some that were following him that found it too hard to take. No, that's intense. I, I can't go to that extent. And in John chapter 6, starting in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him and then jesus said unto the 12 these are the first guys that he signed up in the beginning he said will you also go away simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go for thou hast the words of eternal life we believe and assure that thou art the christ the son of the living god and uh, i mean you may dispute this that's okay but it almost you read between the lines when peter says where else shall we go it almost seems like he's been looking at options and it's like some of this Jesus stuff is a bit strong. It's, it's, it requires a level of commitment that we need to think about for a little while. And it looks like they maybe at least considered their options. He didn't say, Lord, no, we haven't been thinking about this. He said, well, where else, you know? What are options, Lord? That's why we read in Luke 14 and 27 where Jesus said, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple this statement to bear his cross speaks to us of a willingness to surrender to that which is not our will but his will it is a dying to self that is beyond what happened when we repented for the first time and we understand that to be saved we must repent jesus said except you repent you'll likewise perish 
We have to repent. That means I have to turn away from that old life. I have to die to that sinful lifestyle. And I have to turn towards Jesus. And that is a non-negotiable part of our salvation. And it is an ongoing part of our walk with God. There are times when you may do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, and you need to repent and make that right with God. But repentance is not just about addressing sin. Repentance is about taking up your cross. If I will take up my cross, die to myself and follow him, it's connected to the concept of a living sacrifice found in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. It's connected to that idea that we present our bodies to him, a living sacrifice, that we are changed from our mind from what happens in here to what is demonstrated visibly on the outside. Amen. And it is your own cross. Every man must bear his cross. One size does not fit all. There are some things that are required of all of us. If you want to get to heaven, you've got to be born again. That's the only way. Once you're born again, the Lord requires of us that we live a righteous and a holy life, separated from sin, that we grow in grace, that we grow in understanding, that we grow closer to him, that we understand him more and more as time goes by. But there are things each one of us God deals with individually. And so there are things that God will speak to you about that he may not speak to me about and vice versa. And each one of us has, he has a will for each one of our lives that is custom designed for his glory. That's what it's designed for. Nowhere does it say that it's designed for our comfort, but it's designed for His glory. When you take up your cross, the idea is that who you are no longer matters. That doesn't fit very well in this world. But who we are in Him is what matters and how He is able to be demonstrated. So we're talking in this series about what it means to be a disciple. I mean, you see, you sometimes we, we in our comfort we try to follow at a safe distance you know we we keep an eye on the lord but we're not getting too close in case something serious happens we're keeping a safe distance where there's not a lot of commitment required but the problem is the outcome will not be the same we mentioned last week of how elisha the younger prophet was basically a walking definition of a disciple to the older prophet elijah and if you you read their story and you get to it. I think it's, it's not in my notes, but I think it's Second Kings chapter 2, somewhere around about there. They reach a point in time where it's time for Elijah's earthly ministry to be finished. Where it's time for the Lord to take the older prophet. And it doesn't tell us how, but it seems that it was common knowledge that Elijah was going that day, that he was leaving. Nobody really knew all of how that was going to work, I don't believe. But Elijah turns to the younger man, Elisha, and he says, I'm... I'm going to go down to Bethel. He said, you can stay here, but I'm, I'm going down to Bethel. And Elisha said, no way, I'm coming with you. Well, you go, I'm going. And he followed him. And they get to Bethel and there's a group of people called the sons of the prophets. And, and they say to Elisha, hey, don't you know that your master is going to be taken away today? So somehow they knew. I don't know how that message was communicated, whether a, you know, an SMS was sent out to all the sons of the prophets or what happened. But Somehow they knew that Elijah was going to depart. And they said, hey, don't you know that your master is going to be taken from you today? And Elisha says, yeah, I know. Hold your peace, which is King James English for mind your business. 
And then the same thing happens when Elijah decides to go to Jericho. He says, I've got to go to Jericho. He said, but you can stay here. And Elisha, Elisha says, as the Lord liveth and thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And when they get to Jericho, the same thing happens. There's more of these guys saying, hey, don't you know today's the day? And he's like, yeah, I know, mind your business. And the third time, Elijah says, I've got to go to Jordan. You can stay here. And it's like, Elisha's like, have you not got the message yet? As thy soul liveth and as the Lord liveth, I will not leave thee. And so we read in that chapter, they come to the edge of the Jordan River, the two of them standing there, master and disciple, older prophet, younger prophet. The Bible tells us it's significant that there was about 50 of these sons of the prophets that stood afar off to watch what would happen. Put me in a comfortable folding chair with a cool drink, sitting back and to see what was going to take place. And then the scripture says that the prophet Elijah took off his mantle, wrapped it up, and he smote the waters of the Jordan River and they miraculously parted and they went across. When they got to the other side, a chariot of fire came from heaven, separated the two prophets, and Elijah was taken up into the presence of the Lord. And Elisha picked up that mantle and the anointing was passed from one to another because he followed closely. He went back to the Jordan and he said, where is the God of Elijah? Smote the waters and the same miracle took place. And he goes back and he's united again with these sons of the prophets and they're all like, wow, you know, you're the man of God now and all this stuff is great. He said, we're going to go and look for his body. And Elisha says, you're wasting your time. He's gone. But they did. you see, their, their, their experience was distant. And so even their response was inaccurate. They wanted to go and, you know, try to find his body. And Elisha said, you know, don't waste your time. You're not going to do it. But they kept pressing him. And so he said, go on. And he was right. But the, the, the difference between following closely and not being put off or discouraged and following at a safe distance was incredible. If we want to know the anointing and the power of Jesus in our lives, you can't follow at a safe distance where you remain unchanged. You've got to walk with him. You've got to go where he goes, stop where he stops, follow where he leads. In the kingdom of God, there will always be some that participate and some that spectate. And the Lord's looking for participants. You know, we used the example early on of a, how a sports fan, you know, is, is kind of a follower and they, they might follow a team. And, and when you begin to talk to somebody about their team, sometimes you, you, you find out really quickly if it's just a passing interest or a serious passion. And you begin to talk to somebody and they say, oh, yeah, I like this team and, you know, I watch them from time to time. Then there are the people that have all the shirts they get up in the middle of the night to watch a game on the other side of the world. They know every player's name, his wife's name, his kids' names, what he eats for breakfast, what country he comes from, what team he played for, and the three teams before that. They know everything because there's a, a degree of commitment. And what usually happens in that conversation is like, wow, this guy's a bit serious. You know, needs to get some friends and get out more or something, but... But uh, you, you find out whether it's just a passing interest. And you find that out when you talk to people about the Lord as well, where their hearts are at. In Matthew chapter 4, and we read this, I think, already, but I want to read it again. I'm going to try and move along a little bit. Matthew 4 and 18, 
Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this is right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, right at the beginning. Peter and Andrew and the others all sign on for they're not really sure what, but there's something about Jesus that causes them to respond to him. And in the chapters that follow, they get to see Jesus healing multitudes. They get to see him casting out demons and, and just healing. You know, when sometimes when people brought every sick person and he healed them all. Incredible. They, they were there to witness in Matthew, I think it's chapters 5 and 6 and maybe into 7 a little bit, where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous pieces of Scripture in the world. There was even a few moments in Peter's life where he got to walk on water with the Lord. We don't really know how long he was on the water, but even being on the water for five seconds would have been pretty amazing. But as time went by and they got closer to Calvary, a bit like what happened in John chapter 6, the conversation got more intense. Jesus spoke more about suffering. He spoke more about things like them being hated for his namesake. He spoke about having to go away and them not being able to follow him. And Peter, like us often, made great statements of how even if the others ran away, he would follow Jesus to the death. Not me, Jesus. These other lukewarm sissies, yeah, don't count on them, but me, all the way. You can trust me, Jesus. And then when Jesus was arrested and taken to trial, Peter crumples under a few questions, noticeably following Jesus at a distance, just as a side thought. He crumples under a few questions. He denies the Lord and he curses. Jesus is crucified. The disciples scatter. Nobody knows what to do. We know the Lord, with the the wonders of being able to look back, he rises from the dead. He appears to his disciples. This is all amazing, but what's happening now is all a bit uncertain. What's going to take place? And One of my favorite chapters in the New Testament is in John chapter 21 where we find some of the disciples back by the Sea of Galilee, not really sure what to do with themselves. So they they do what people do. They've gone back to what they know. They're all just hanging around and Peter says, all right, I've had enough. I'm going fishing. Going fishing. The others say, hey, we'll come too. Better than just sitting here. And they fish all night and they catch nothing. Jesus appears on the shore tells them to cast their net on the other side of the ship and suddenly there are so many fish in the net that they're struggling to even hold on to the thing and to try to pull it in. Peter realizes it's the Lord. He jumps overboard and swims to shore and they manage to bring the fish in and there's bread and fish on the fire when they get there on the beach and they all eat the bread and fish together. And then after the meal, John chapter 21, starting to read at verse 15, It says, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. You got to remember, this is not long. This is really only a matter of a few days after Peter's so powerfully denied the Lord. Verse 16 says, he saith unto him a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, yea, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said unto him, feed my sheep. And then a third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. 
Then in verse 18, the Lord says, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, when you were young, you girded yourself. You walked where you wanted to walk. But when you're going to be old, they shall stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and shall carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify. Those was Jesus was showing Peter that he wasn't going to die naturally, but that he was going to be a martyr. And when he'd done that, he spake, he signified what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. It's probably been a little over three years by now, but at possibly the exact same location as in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus repeats the words that he said to Peter in the beginning, follow me. Peter still doesn't know all that the future will hold. But now he understands, I think, at least to a point that this being a disciple thing was more than just miraculously feeding 5,000 people or healing the sick. You know, he, as often was the way you read on in that chapter, he sort of says to the Lord, well, what about John? What are you going to do with John? And the Lord basically says, mind your own business. <laughs> I'll deal with John. I'm dealing with you. This is your cross, Peter. He has his. This is yours. Peter would go on to be imprisoned, to be beaten, to be flogged. Eventually, tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down, gave his life in the tradition. We don't have scripture for it, but tradition says he didn't want to be crucified the right way up because he didn't consider it to be himself suitable to die the same way that Jesus did. He suffered all these things, but it's worth it. Because not only was he imprisoned and beaten, gave his life for Jesus, but he preached on the day of Pentecost, the first gospel message of the new birth, and saw thousands of people born again. Together with John, he went down to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, laid hands on a citywide revival, and people were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 10, going against all of his cultural norms, he goes to Cornelius' house and preaches to them about Christ and him crucified. And while he's preaching, God pours out his spirit upon that household and he commands them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. So yes, there is a cost to being a disciple, but it's worth it. It is so worth it. Would you stand with me this morning? Sisters Danker, if I could have you on the piano, please. Conversion is wonderful. Never underestimate the value of your conversion experience. Never take it lightly that Jesus would wash away your sins with the power of his blood and his name, that he would put some of his spirit inside of you, that it would be that earnest, that deposit, that down payment of what it's going to be like when we're in his presence forever. But once that begins, the question of this series is, will you be his disciple? The devil does not want us to be his disciple because when people follow him, when they take up their cross and they follow him, things happen. Lives are changed. You're able to make a difference. You're able to demonstrate the power of God in your own life and to the lives of others. And we'll get at the end of these series probably into what it means to disciple somebody else. But if you want to answer that question this morning, will I be his disciple disciple am i just here for the loaves and fishes 
I'm just here for the the good stuff, the blessings, and the you know the Lord does the Lord blesses us more than we deserve. He's so good to us. I mean, in this country, we really don't have the right to use the word persecution. We occasionally experience what could best be described as mild discomfort, not persecution. You know, yes, we might have friends and family that give us a hard time, but compared to being imprisoned and, and beaten, will you be his disciple? Will you take up your cross? Will you follow him? When somebody asks you about Jesus, are you that fan that can talk about his birth and his death and his resurrection and his saving power and the power of the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and healing and lives being made whole and families being put back together and how the word of God says he's coming back. Are you just, well, I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's a great place to start, but will you be his disciple? 